Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Mental Golf Show. As always, I'm your host, Josh Nichols, and welcome to part one of two, where Dr. Raymond Pryor and I are going to be tackling some common mental game myths in golf. In Dr. Pryor's upcoming book, Golf Beneath the Surface, you've no doubt heard me refer to it in the past. Uh, I'm super excited about it. It's coming out May 9th. You can go ahead and pre-order it. The link will be in the show notes to, to go to the Amazon page. But a major theme of Golf Beneath the Surface is how the cliches and catchphrases and mental tips and tricks that we've all heard so many times are mostly just myths. They've been generally accepted as truths, but don't actually have much or any supporting evidence to back them up. So you could look at this episode as a teaser for the book and some of the deeper evidence-based psychology that you will learn reading it. I, I mean, most of these myths, uh, if not all of them, are covered in the book. I've, I've read the pre-release draft, and I've, I'm starting to read the actual, uh, actual book. He sent me a hard, hard copy of it. So all of these myths are are tackled in the book. But I think, I mean, first of all, it's awesome to get this information right now from Dr. Pryor without needing to read the book. So I think equipping yourself with this knowledge will allow you to be more informed in the fact-checking of what you read and hear, as well as how to specifically apply the actual scientifically-backed psychology that will help you play better golf. So it, it can help in your consumption of golf advice, but also apply these things that we talk about today in this episode and part two upcoming and and actually get into applying and improving your game. So usually at the front end of these episodes, I ask the uh, guest to introduce themselves and give us a backstory and a history and all that. Um, I've talked to to Dr. Pryor in a previous episode of the Mental Golf Show. I believe it's uh, uh, from February of 2022. So if you want to learn more about Dr. Pryor's history of how he got into this, how, how, what led him to uh, being in the psychology space, uh, I encourage you to go listen to that episode. But on this one, we're going to jump right into it. Um, Yeah. So let's, let's get into these, uh, these mental game myths and I hope you enjoy. Let's just jump right in. Um, the first myth, as we'll call them, is uh, just be positive. So um, obviously we we all kind of like the sound of that. That sounds good. It sounds helpful. But what do you what would you say to someone who's like, yeah, I'm just trying to be positive. Like uh, that's that's good advice. What would you how would you talk about it? Um, I think first, with all these myths, it's important to understand that they're usually rooted in really well-intentioned advice, like trying to help people. Um, but it's just important for us to pay attention to is that what's actually happening, um, which we'll get to perception and reality here in a second. And obviously, the perception is that these myths are helpful. Um, the reality is that many of them are not and can actually be harmful. And the first one that we have is just being positive. What's important about a lot of these myths is the reason that they are myths and don't actually work in the way they do is because they work in opposition to how our brain is actually designed to operate. So, for example, just being positive sounds really good on the surface, but underneath, it's important to understand, like, our brain is specifically designed to remember um, an error on the side of negative events. So this is an evolutionary 
survival mechanism from our brain where if 15,000 years ago when the world was a lot more dangerous to us in general, um, if you didn't remember negative events, it was going to catch up with you in a way that was not recoverable for us. So our brain evolved to remember negative events and it doesn't just forget them and being positive about them. What it does is uh, working against how our brain is designed. It kind of produces three different outcomes. And the first is it makes us feel worse usually. So if I put you in a really challenging situation with some adversity involved and there's going to be some quote unquote negative events in that maybe hitting a bad shot or feeling something um, really disruptive internally and tell you to just smother it with positivity. Essentially what it's doing is it's making us feel worse because what it's doing is it's highlighting the disparity between what we are actually experiencing, which is something really challenging, perhaps uncomfortable and maybe negative or potentially negative and what it is that we think we should, which is this really positive situation. And what it's doing is it's highlighting the disparity between the two. And one of the things about how our brain works is that if I tell you, this is how you should be thinking and feeling and experiencing and what sh should be happening for you. But the reality is something very different from that. That typically makes us feel worse because now we go, well, what is wrong? Right. Um, and what that does is basically it, it removes us from our current reality. So the first thing is that makes us feel worse. The second thing is we're not very good at dealing with adversity and challenging situations, or perhaps I might even just say a negative situation, fall in the water, fall out of bounds, et cetera, when we're not dealing with it as it is and acknowledging it as it is, which it might be kind of a crappy situation, so to speak. And when, when we smother things with positivity, not only do we tend to feel worse because we're trying to be positive about something that might not be very positive, but the second thing is, we're not dealing with things as they are. And sometimes what they are is a pretty negative situation. Now, as human beings are far more resilient dealing with things as they are than smothering them with the positivity we wish they were covered in. And then the last thing is it kind of works against our brain in terms of us building kind of long-term resiliency and, and uh, confidence because our brain has this ratio that it works with. So most of our neuroscience research shows that it takes five quote-unquote, positive events to overpower one, quote-unquote, negative event. And I put it in quotes because what we perceive as positive and negative depends a lot on what value we give to events and how much we subjectively judge them. But if in golf, let's say we're just using like a mistake, a, a poor shot, in order to, like the value our brain puts on one poor shot is equal to the value it puts on five shots. And so when I go, oh, here's a poor shot, and I smother it with positivity, it makes it feel worse, and it makes me less capable of dealing with whatever situation I'm facing next, which means that ratio now becomes even more disruptive because I need more and more things to quote-unquote be positive for me to be able to deal with the one negative thing. So I'm pushing that ratio in a direction that is more difficult for me to cover than it is if I was just dealing with it as it is. So while being positive is um, really well-intentioned, when it moves to the point where we are not really being honest with ourselves and it kind of lacks credibility, then it tends to be more harmful than helpful. Mm. Okay. There was a lot there. Um, so on that 
like five to one, like I, I latch onto that because it's like, Ooh, somewhere in there is maybe like a quick tip that I can do. Like, okay, well I, I need to say five positive things to overcome one negative thing. And that's, that highlights that disparity still. So uh, a lot of common things that I've seen out there is like, okay, every time you have a good shot, write it down or, you know, as like a post round, um, kind of debrief or, or something, and really highlight all the good shots. What what do you think about that? Is that helpful or does that feed into the same thing? I think it feeds into it more than it doesn't. What will be better for us, again, understanding how our brain actually operates is if and in, with a lot of the players I talk about, whether you're practicing or playing, if you hit a shot where you're like, man, that, I would bottle that up and hit that every single time, regardless of what kind of shot it is you'd be far better served just taking 10 seconds to do nothing and just letting it soak into your brain. And what's happening basically on our subconscious brain is it's replaying that event several times, usually at like 10 to 20 times the speed for 10 seconds. And it is now encoding that information because you have taken a pause and just gone, Hey, replay that a couple of times. It's starting to encode that in a way. And what's happening underneath is in our brain, there's a chemical called acetylcholine. Acetylcholine is essentially a, um, a brain chemical that acts as a highlighter pen in our brain. And it highlights the neuropathways that we tell it are important. Essentially, what we focus on is what it will tell our brain is really important. And then when we're sleeping, it goes back and it rewires those highlighted sections. This is, again, assuming we've slept enough during the night. So when we hit a shot that we just, wow, that's awesome, absolutely love, the 10 seconds afterward is really vitally important. If you take 10 seconds to just soak that in, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to consciously think through it. You don't have to, okay, what happened? How did I maneuver the club? Do whatever. But just let it soak in by doing nothing. Your brain is highlighting as it goes. And if you were to do that and then go get a good night of sleep, that would be far more valuable than trying to keep a log of all the best shots you've hit. Because the bottom line is it's kind of like a pros and cons list where you write down your pros, you write down your cons. They typically can be similar in length. And then also it's not a one-to-one ratio. So if I hit five great shots, but I hit one that cost me, you know, two strokes, those events are not necessarily a one-to-one ratio of this is positive and this is negative, right? So we're trying to manipulate this positivity ratio, quote unquote, in a way that our brain doesn't really register consciously. So it is important for us to evaluate our performance. But if we're trying to help our brain remember, here's what you did to produce what I'm wanting you to produce, we're far better served just taking a couple of seconds. So what I oftentimes when I'm talking to players and they're practicing or they're playing like, dude, anytime you hit a shot that you are like, oh, that's what I want, just 10 seconds, do nothing. Hmm. Okay. Let it soak in. I like that highlighter chemical too. That's uh, that's really cool. Okay. All right. Well, that's awesome. I mean, uh, that's that's real real science to back up. Like, just covering smothering things in positivity doesn't work. So, we're attacking we're it in a proper way. Yeah, we're typically less resilient when we try to smother um, not so positive situations with positivity. And ultimately what happens is now what we're doing is we're multitasking with our feelings instead of dealing with the task at hand, which we'll get to as we get to some other um, myths. 
Sure. Okay, cool. So the next one is distraction. So I'm not totally, I guess I do know what you, I, I, I think I do know what you're referring to, but maybe you can explain just distraction as a, as a, as a thing and then why it's a myth and then why it's unhelpful. Yeah. So we as humans employ a variety of distraction techniques, usually to try to distract ourselves from other distractions, namely being like emotional discomfort and our own thoughts that we don't like. So for example, um, you know, a client I had one time said that he learned from somebody that he's supposed to count backwards from a hundred by threes while he's stepping into a shot. Like the idea is that it engages your left brain and allows your right brain access to stuff, which is not really how our brain works mm-hmm. either. There are two hemispheres, but they work together. It's not like one part of our brain is on and the other part is, is off. Like right. it's really true. That sounds um, hard too. <laughs> it would be really difficult to do. Um, <laughs> And so the idea is that like, well, if I distract myself with doing some long division or something, my math homework, then I won't have to deal with perhaps feeling anxious or the idea that this ball might go right or disappointing other people or embarrassing myself, et cetera. So it's essentially, well, if I think about this, then I won't worry about this type of techniques. Um, one that a, a player told me wasn't, she didn't do it, but she knew another player who did it where when she was under pressure, she would just like jab her fingers under her rib cage to try to create like some physical pain to distract herself from the anxiety of playing, you know, in the back nine of a really important tournament while being in contention, which can be an anxiety provoking event, right? <laughs> so all these techniques, which are really like trying to eject us from what it is that we are currently experiencing. Um, again, understanding how our brain works is, our brain is very attuned. The reason that people think they needed to distract themselves from this is because our brain is really attuned to what it is that we are currently experiencing. And to a degree where when our emotions get elevated enough or our physiological state changes and our sympathetic nervous system fires, like we're going to know about it. Like our the whole point of us uh, becoming anxious about something or perhaps our physiological uh, state changing is it's trying to make us aware you need to do something, right? And so when we try to distract ourselves from that, our, our brain sees through it and it gets uh, tired of it really quickly. Like we are not very good at convincing ourselves that this is happening when really this is happening. And our brain is specifically designed for us not to be able to trick ourselves into that because if we could, we would have died sooner, right? Again, what this does, understanding how our brain works, is it's highlighting the disparity between this is your current experience, internal and external, and this is the one that you kind of wish you had, which was ejecting you from this one because it's uncomfortable. And what that does for us is it lacks credibility because we can only do that for so long before our brain is like, it's it's sick of it. It figures it out pretty fast. Mm. Um, and what it really comes down to is it's an avoidance strategy. Instead of us wanting to deal with what we are currently experiencing, either internally or externally, um, is we're trying to eject from it. And that what it creates for us is multitasking, meaning we are now not just attending to the task at hand, which is playing golf, specifically the shot at hand. And we are now multitasking with our emotional state or our physiological state. We're trying to create a psychological state that doesn't exist for us yet. And the bottom line is when we multitask with things, we get worse at both tasks. This is why you can't, it's illegal to drive and text at the same time mm-hmm. because it divides our focus. And as human beings, we can multitask, 
But what's happening is really is our attention and our focus is jumping back and forth from task to task. And when that happens, we get worse at both tasks. So if my task that I want to be good at is playing this next golf shot and I happen to be feeling anxious or nervous or excited or I'm having thoughts that I don't like and then I'm trying to distract myself from them, those thoughts and feelings aren't actually going anywhere. But now what happens is they become the priority for my focus, which means I'm now worse at doing the thing that I'm doing. And when we multitask, um, on a brain activity level, what's happening is that our uh, the brain waves we're operating on are really high frequency and really high intensity, meaning there's a lot more thinking going on. <coughs> Excuse me. Again. And when more thinking going on, think of thoughts like cars on a roadway in our brains. The more thoughts we have, the more traffic there is. And the more traffic there is, the longer it takes for messages to get to our brain and body. These high-frequency, high-intensity brain waves essentially mean our brain cannot communicate to our body, do this this way as fast as it usually can, mucked up. And ultimately what that does, we know for sure from, from a variety of studies, whether it's golf, whether it's musicians, whether it's surgeons, a variety of different people executing physical skills is that it disrupts the sequencing of physical motions, something that's pretty important in a golf swing. Two, it disrupts our ability to apply the appropriate amount of force, meaning hitting a ball far enough without hitting it too far or too short. And this particularly plays out in our short game in those touch shots that aren't full shots. And then the last thing is it makes it more difficult for us to focus on an external target for the reason being we're multitasking with an internal state, right? And so brain activity is the type of brain waves that we know disrupts physical motions. Neurochemically, when we start distracting ourselves, it makes us feel worse, again, because we're highlighting the disparity between what we're currently experiencing and what we would like to distract ourselves into experiencing. And what that really creates is a low dopamine state of um, neuro, a low dopamine neurochemical state for us, which means it doesn't feel very good and it feels like it takes longer. So dopamine is this really important neuromodulator uh, in our brain because it really determines how enjoyable, meaning how motivated we are and how confident we are in certain states. And also it impacts greatly how we experience the passage of time. So when I'm in a low dopamine state, things feel worse for me, perhaps than they really are, and it feels like it takes forever. So when I'm distracting myself, I'm not actually making myself feel better, and I'm actually making what I'm sitting in, the discomfort that I might have, not only am I making it worse, I'm making it feel like it takes a whole lot longer, right? So for example, flow state, which is our optimal state of human functioning, is the exact opposite of distraction. Flow state, by definition, is immersion in the task at hand in the present moment. There's no multitasking going on. And because we're not multitasking and we are present, that's a high dopamine state for us as human beings, which is why it feels really good to be in flow state and why it seems like it goes by really fast. Like the, it, There's a distortion in how we experience time. While we're actually competing, it feels like things are, are slowed down and everything is moving exactly at a pace that we can keep up with. Psychologically, we are in tune with each moment as it's playing out. And neurochemically, it's a high dopamine state, which means I will manipulate the time for you in a way that is best for you. And then when we're done, it feels like it went by this fast. Even though when we reflect on it, we go, well, it did 
the round of golf took as long as it usually takes, right? So when we are distracting ourselves, we are putting ourselves in a low dopamine state. And a low dopamine state makes things feel longer, not shorter. And it also makes them feel worse, not better. And then finally, as I mentioned before, like we're not present. Like Mm. being present means that we are attuned to what we're doing when it's happening. And the bottom line is we as human beings are higher functioning, happier and healthier human beings by when we are engaging with things, by being engaged with them not by distracting ourselves from them. So again, Mm -hmm. we don't need to be in flow state to perform well, but it is a really helpful frame of reference because everyone performs better in flow state. And that is a space void of distraction, not by adding distractions to it. So again, Mm -hmm. distraction, like do this to try to jump out of whatever you're experiencing, sounds helpful on the surface because it's like, well, it will alleviate whatever I'm feeling, but it actually does not. Mm. Okay, so we've kind of got a couple of themes going here, just be positive and distraction. The Really, the counter to both of those is see things as they are, like experience the discomfort, experience the, um, the negativity as it is, and that helps you be in the present, helps you perform better, helps you feel better. Correct. One of the things that my uh, clients know that I hit them over the head with is this idea of acceptance. Acceptance doesn't mean we like something. It doesn't mean we're comfortable with something. It doesn't mean we're certain. It doesn't mean we don't care about what's happening or what might happen or what has happened. And it doesn't mean we're resigning ourselves to less. Like, well, I just accept that today's not my day. That's not what acceptance is. Acceptance is being in tune with our reality as it is right now. Right. And by the way, oftentimes that includes discomfort and uncertainty and a variety of different things that we don't typically like. What the power with acceptance is when I stop, when I accept things as they are, I stop multitasking with a bunch of things that are not relevant. One of the things that is super important about understanding distraction techniques is that they buy one of the things that's, uh, I think, important for us to understand if, if I can try to articulate this correctly is that they, in no uncertain terms, train us to not to be able to filter out what's not relevant. And if you can't figure out what's relevant and what's not relevant to the task at hand, you are going to be engaging with things that disrupt your ability to do it. Acceptance cuts through what's not relevant and gets to what is relevant. Because when it comes to hitting a golf shot, it would it's always nice to feel comfortable. Being comfortable is not relevant to hitting a good golf shot. Every golfer in the world has hit a really good golf shot being super uncomfortable. So it's not a requirement. So if we are using distraction techniques, we are pushing ourselves more toward irrelevancy than relevancy. And we get better at handling difficult situations and whether internal or external and actually dealing with the task at hand when we are focused on what's actually relevant. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's awesome. Super well said. Uh, I can think of an example of some of my clients. They, you know, sing a song or something, they distract themselves with, with singing or you said long division or jabbing your fingers under your rib cage. Like that's, that's crazy. One I would uh, recommend. Now, by the way, if you've just got a song in your head, fine. Great. The issue is, do I just have a song in my head and it's kind of playing along or am I using it to try to eject from something that I just don't like? Mm. And it's that it's the, if I am, it's highlighting a disparity. It's it's trying to avoid the discomfort and all of those. And and now you're 
jumping attention attentionally back and forth and you're going to be right. worse at both yeah you are dividing your attention not and then narrowing it right okay cool all right so let's let's move into the next one um willpower so this is like a maybe similar to distraction where i'm i'm trying to overcome this situation through sheer force of will but maybe you can um pinpoint what you mean as willpower as a myth in golf psychology or the mental game. So what's willpower and why is it a myth? Yeah, I think willpower, if we're talking about it, is this idea that I'm just going to force my inner experience, our inner experiences, our thoughts, our feelings, our sensations, et cetera, or our behaviors, like what we actually do. I'm going to move them around with force. So that's the, I'm going to banish my thoughts I'm going to just not think about something. I'm going to force myself to just relax or just be disciplined or just be committed, etc. As it applies to our external performance, it's I'm just going to will this putt into the hole type of situation where I'm mm-hmm. just uh, I'm just going to make it happen. Like Tiger, he always willed every putt into the of hole. Of course, right? Yeah, he never matched line and speed. It's all just willpower, right? Mm-hmm. So. And this is a really well-intentioned idea. The idea is just like, hey, if things aren't going your way or you want them to go your way, just like knuckle down and make it happen, right? So a really good idea and would be really valuable if we could do that. So needless to say, science has jumped all over it and tried to figure it out. But the few number of studies that actually recognize willpower as a perhaps a psychological resource for us showed that people who leaned on willpower more actually had worse performance than people who don't. So it leads to performance deficits, not performance gains. The other um, research that's examined willpower basically shows that the more people lean on willpower, the more depleted we are in terms of our physical energy, the more we deplete our focus, and the more we deplete our emotional bandwidth, which basically means we're more distracted, we are physically worn out, and we are more irritable. And if you are a person who is easily, you have expended your energy for irritability in a game that is inherently built for trying to create irritability and, and agitate people. Hence, we see why people who lean on willpower more perform worse. Because three of the things that really help us, energy, focus, and emotional control, we have we burn through them faster when we are using willpower as a means to try to drive our performance. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, What the research also shows is that willpower becomes less reliable and burns through all those resources more the more difficulty we're under and the more more pressure-filled situations we're in. So if we go, well, when I get under pressure, I'm just going to willpower these putts into the hole. I'm just going to will myself to think a certain way or feel a certain way. The more the pressure gets ratcheted up, the less reliable that becomes. And then again, here we're seeing that common theme of, well, if under pressure, I'm going to will myself to feel a certain way but it's actually doing the exact opposite. Now I'm moving farther away from where I want to be, not closer to it. And it creates a situation where we're trying to not exist with what it is that we're actually experiencing under pressure, which is it's designed to try to make us, it's designed in a way that is trying to find out how we deal with pressure, bottom line. Right. So um, on a neurological level, we consider willpower basically to be something that is driven by our prefrontal cortex, which is kind of the the command center of our brain. It's really important for us to be able to think rationally, think logically, think consciously, but is the part of our brain that 
is the slowest and the weakest in terms of how fast it's operating and processing speed. And with willpower, when we're consciously trying to force ourselves to either not think, not feel something, or just make a skill work out the way that we want it to, we are using the slowest and weakest parts of our brain to try to overpower the fastest and strongest parts of our brain. And our brain is specifically designed for it not to be able to win that, that battle. And if it does, not over time, hence why it depletes our energy, our focus, and our emotional bandwidth and hurts our performance. Um, and so when we are using willpower to try to control what's going on internally, it doesn't work because that battle is not meant to be won by the part of the brain that runs willpower, if it's even a thing. And then most of the research also shows us that willpower is just a false association. A false association is us creating a link between two things that seem related but really aren't, you know, a, a classic example in golf would be dudes talking to their golf ball or girls talking to their golf ball, telling it to get up or sit down or stop or whatever. Golf balls don't have ears. They can't hear. Like they only respond to the laws of physics, not to what we tell it to do. It's a harmless false association talking to your golf ball because it's not going to negatively impact it. But other false associations are indeed negative, and willpower is one of them, again, because the more we lean on it thinking it's doing good things for us, the more it's depleting our ability to handle pressure and adversity because it's burning through our psychological energy and emotional resources. Mm, okay. So an example of that, – that was an example of a false association, but what, what would be a good example of willpower, of, of trying to – I mean – Willing a ball in the hole might be um, trying to channel all of your focus into making this putt. Maybe what's what's something you run into of like someone trying to use willpower? Sure. I think with willpower, oftentimes we direct it internally, which is I'm going to tell myself, just don't think this or right. just don't, oh, you're feeling anxious, just relax, right? So I'm applying force to or I'm trying to suppress a certain internal experience in order to elicit another one. And, and like, I'm trying, oh, you're not feeling confident, just feel trust, right? So it's just, you're feeling this, do this instead, or feel this instead. And that's not how our brain and, and nervous system work. They don't just be pushed in a certain direction just because we tell it to, not very efficiently. And if it does, it can only do so for so long. And the more pressure built situation we're under, the less it wants to listen to that. Right. Um, so when it's applied internally, like that's just the, just be disciplined, just don't think about this or don't have this thought or don't have this feeling or emotion or just telling ourselves like you got to get comfortable or be relaxed is us just trying to force our way into a psychological or emotional state by willing it to happen, which doesn't work very well. Mm, okay. So maybe, um, you're on the first tee. Nerves are going crazy. You feel all that pressure. I mean, that's a, a common pressure scenario. Willpower might be, I don't want to feel pressure. I don't want to feel uncomfortable. I don't want to feel nervous. So just relax. And can that manifest as into a technique, like uh, just do some breathing or just, um, I don't know, distract yourself. Like it kind of goes into that. Um, and, so you're in that situation, you try to just relax. What what like what might actually happen in that shot? Obviously you could hit a great one despite, but right. what might actually happen? Yeah, I mean remember when it comes to executing our physical skills, we're not robots. So think of it almost like an odds game. Like are you stacking the deck in your favor or aren't you? 
when I, let's say I go to the first tee and I'm feeling anxiety and I tell myself via willpower, just relax or just stop thinking negative thoughts, et cetera. Again, that's creating that disparity, which my brain is going to sniff out of, no, you're feeling anxious. Okay, don't feel anxious. Uh-oh, that means, means something's wrong. So usually what happens is whatever we are experiencing and we try to smother it with willpower or positivity or distraction, it actually amplifies it. And the bottom line is if you do that, now you're creating a low dopamine state with high-frequency brain activity, which disrupts your physical skills so the deck is not stacked in your favor. The odds of you actually executing that swing freely, meaning pursuing the shot you want versus trying to hit a shot out of avoidance, meaning please don't hit it somewhere, is the reason people have these steery, guidey, whatever swings because they're not actually committed to the target that they've selected or the shot they've selected. They're in between. And then your brain doesn't really know which one you want it to do and it will default to the please don't do this version because, again, that's how it's designed. If you give our brain a task of don't do this, and do this, it's going to pick the don't do this that is like, oh, that will save you from the thing that you're telling me that's not acceptable, right? So what that manifests in is usually poorly executed skills or at least skills executed well below your current skill level because, again, you're creating self-imposed restrictions that create brain activity and a neurological state and a psychological state that stacks the deck in favor of avoidance rather than pursuit which is why you typically see swings like that. But by the way, mm. if you stack the deck fully in your favor, meaning you are present, you're high dopamine, uh, high adrenaline, basically being like high alertness and high energy, which is nerves, and you are not multitasking with anything, you are focused and pursuing the target you want totally freely, doesn't mean you're going to hit it every time. But over time, like the larger the sample size is, the more likely you are to hit way more shots that you want and your misses are going to be better. And this is particularly important because when we are under pressure, that is the only thing that really stacks the deck in our favor. Mm. Uh, okay. So very likely, if you are on the first tee trying to tell yourself, just don't feel this or just don't think this, you're making it less likely for yourself to be able to hit a shot as you intend. Mm. Okay, man, that's good. That's good stuff. Okay, moving on to the next one. And this is probably has, again, some overlap, but this is, I think this is the most commonly requested thing from the players that I work with is I hit a bad shot. How do I move on? So the myth is just forget about a bad shot. Just, just forget about it. It didn't happen. Um, just move on. So why, why isn't that helpful? And we could probably take some answers from some of these previous ones, but specifically for moving on from a bad shot, what's the myth there? Yeah. The myth here is just forget, or, you know, you might hear on TV, like you got to have a short term memory. That's not how our brain works. Our brain is specifically designed to remember mistakes and errors because that's how it learns. Our brain does learn more through error than it does anything else. This is also why uh, perfectionism is not helpful for long-term growth for us because it doesn't allow for error. We need error to get better. Also why if you're practicing and your success rate in a drill or a um, like a challenge or something is above 85%, you're not getting better because your brain needs error to calibrate. Like we basically need error, things that we don't want to happen to show our brain how to do things that we want to happen more efficiently. So of course, we're not trying to make errors while we're playing golf, but the bottom line is nobody goes through a round of golf with make without making some level of error. Even if you shoot a 59 or a 58, 
you didn't hit every shot perfectly. So the bottom line is there's error involved in everything we do. When we tell ourselves, just forget, like just let it go, we're working against how our brain is designed to remember error because, again, that's how it learns how to do things better. And essentially what we're doing is we're also creating a very agitated state because we're telling ourselves, you need to forget that thing that just happened. Only our brain, that's not what it does. It's specifically designed to latch onto it and figure out what happened so it can try to do something different next time. And if I told you, you need to forget the thing that your brain is specifically designed to replay a bunch right now, not in the long term, also in the short term, you're going to be super frustrated because you're not going to be able to do that. Um, so if we want to get better, we need to allow for error and we need to be able to process and remember those quote unquote bad shots in order to do that. The key is, can we build a relationship with errors and mistakes that allows us to do that more objectively rather than subjectively and stop taking them personally. So if I told you every time you make an error, it's just a bad shot and it's the worst shot you've ever hit and et cetera. So all these kind of subjective judgments of how good or bad, right or wrong it is. Ultimately what happens is you're just wrapping emotion around it and which is going to make you remember it longer, but in a negative way. And again, there's that, five to one ratio we were talking about before. So now here we see why people go, well, I need to hit another good shot in order to feel more confident. No, you don't. But if I wrap all my mistakes in subjective judgment, you're probably going to feel that way. Sure. And then if I also take them personally going, I made a mistake, meaning I always screw up in this spot. I always screw up in this way. I always do this. I'm not a good golfer, et cetera, which are all these kind of, again, the more subjective and personal judgments. What we're missing is the actual objective information that our brain needs to be able to correct those errors. And so the more we can look at shots and go and say, instead of it's a bad shot, it was a shot that started too far right and moved too far right. Or the contact was poor because I hit the ball too thin or et cetera. So we're really looking at what objectively happened. So we're looking at the factual nature of something. Our, our brain loves facts. And so if we give it facts to deal with, it can correct sooner. For example, if you hit a bad shot and I say, you're just a bad golfer. Your brain doesn't know how to correct from being bad golfer. It does know how to correct club face was open because the, the correction to that is to square the club face. That is an objective observation and evaluation of a shot that allows for improvement. You're a bad golfer. Just don't be a bad golfer. Your brain has no idea how to deal with that. And by the way, I wouldn't either. Right? Right. And then also if we're taking everything personally, what starts to happen is we start to, to see mistakes as a threat to us. And your brain is specifically designed to avoid threats. And so when we say just forget, and if you can't forget, it's a subjective judgment of a shot being good or bad, right or wrong. And then also I'm going to take it personally. Eventually what happens is we start to fear the things that we can't just forget. And then that is going to play out because now you're going to start to fear mistakes and errors rather than pursuing the shots you want. And when errors and mistakes happen, being able to use them as a means to learn. So the long and the short of it is the more we're trying to just forget mistakes and cover them up with subjectivity and personal judgment, we learn to fear failures. Whereas if we pursue what we want, understand that error and mistakes are part of the game and see them more objectively and stop taking them personally we learn from failure and there our brain learns so fast from failure, but not when we wrap it up in subjectivity and personal judgment. Mm, okay. 
so the um to jump back to something you said early on was if you're doing a challenge of some kind and you're you're succeeding 85% of the time and maybe this doesn't this this could just be tangential but if you're if you're succeeding over 85% of the time you're not making enough errors to learn so you need to set up a challenge that causes more failure than that is that what you're saying correct yeah so again this is relative to your skill level Right. So let's say, you know, a lot of the clients I have, they have these wedge drills, like quite frankly, they're way beyond my skill level. So my success rate would be so the success rate we're looking for is somewhere between 50 and 80 ish, 85 ish percent. And this is where our brain learns because there's enough error that it is creating feedback for our brain. And it's also not so difficult that it's outside of our current skill level where it can't calibrate how to make changes because it can't physically do it yet or it hasn't neurologically learned how to do it yet. So if I'm practicing in a way where my success rate is like above 80%, essentially I am not stressing my brain with enough error for it to make corrections and learn. You're not really getting better at something, right? So if I have a putting drill where I'm making everything, it's not hard enough. It doesn't have enough variability in it. It doesn't require me to have to execute my skills in a way where there's enough error involved. Our brain learns not just from what we want it to do, but from doing things that we don't want it to do. So for example, if even just physically learning, let's say you were trying to learn how to hit a really high wedge. You would wanna hit a bunch really high. You would also then wanna hit a bunch at about as low as possible. So you're overemphasizing the opposite because your brain also learns from, oh, this is too much in the opposite direction this is the right amount over here. This is too much in this direction, right? So this is why if you were, for example, if you're trying to learn how to deliver the club from the inside rather than coming over the top, as most golfers do, you would also, not only would you want to exaggerate the motion from the inside, you also want to exaggerate coming over the top even more. And so when this comes to our practice success rate, when it doesn't fit into this window where we can exaggerate um, enough, and if our success rate is too easy, our brain's not learning um, as it goes. Like it needs error and it needs, and this is why block practice also isn't super helpful for us. The better we get, because there's not enough variability in it and therefore not enough error involved in it. Mm, okay. There's there's a myth that we didn't even have on this list of, of block practice being what everyone likes to do, but honestly, maybe not that helpful. Yeah, block practice is really helpful when you're on the low end of the learning curve. So the learning curve goes from steep to flat. Flat meaning uh, at the top, it takes more time and more effort uh, to make smaller and smaller increments of progress. Also meaning more error to make smaller and smaller increments of progress. On the low end of the learning curve, any effort is usually helpful because you just suck at something, which is okay, (laughs) right? Block practice on the low end is good because you're just training your brain, your nervous system, and your muscles to be able to do something that it doesn't know how to do well yet. As you get better and better at it, that block practice becomes less and less helpful because, again, it doesn't include enough error. It doesn't include enough variability, and you are executing skills in a way that does not represent how they need to be executed, either under pressure or in actual competitive conditions. So, you know, a tour pro hitting an eight iron 10 times in a row after the second one or so, not actually helping them get better. Now, if you're doing that to warm up and the purpose is to actually warm up your body and get ready to play, that's one thing. 
But if you're practicing, oh, I'm going to get better at hitting the shot by hitting the same shot to the same target from the same distance over and over again, you're not actually helping your brain because once it does it once or twice, it has the information it needs and then there's not enough error involved for it to make more corrections to it. Mm. Okay, so maybe a good rule of thumb for someone on that learning curve of, of where am I on this learning curve as far as how, how helpful block practice is, is, okay, I'm, I'm going to hit 10 eight irons. If I can hit eight, well, I mean, is that like, I'm not making enough, uh, enough error for this to be challenging enough. I need to like lower the importance and lower the priority of block practice. I mean, is it that cut and dry? To a degree. Um, so again, what, as a general framework, again, we're talking in generalities for golfers, Sure, you know, the better you are, the less block practice you're going to want to engage in. And then also the, the order of operations and practice matters. So if you're going to use block practice where perhaps you're using a drill or a training aid and you're going to be hitting essentially the same shot ish, you want to do that early in your practice because that kind of grooves your, um, your nervous system for this is the motions we're trying to make and repeat and learn. But then you're going to want to move more toward randomized and or simulated practice as you move through your practice. Like just doing a long hour and a half of block practice is not really helpful for almost anyone. Like you want to, but as you get better, you just move the amount of block practice down and the amount of randomized practice up. Hmm. Okay. That's, again, that's general good. rule of thumb. Yeah, of course. And of course. That depends on like, are you making a swing change and are you not? But let's assuming your swing is where you are and you're just practicing it to try to groove it more, just hitting balls at the same targets with the same clubs over and over again. And particularly so fast that your brain's not processing that information in between is not very efficient practice for us. On the very bottom of the learning curve, it is relatively helpful because again, you suck at something. So any, any effort and any reps are better than none. But as we get higher on the, the learning curve, the, the quality of those reps we get is far more valuable. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed part one of Dispelling Common Golf Psychology Myths with Raymond Pryor. I know there's some real practical advice in here that you can apply to your game, so I highly encourage you to take what you're hearing and literally put it into practice. Take it to the chipping green, putting green, uh, driving range, on the course, casual rounds, competitive rounds, you can apply this into your game. Notice your tendency to say these things to yourself or notice when someone else says these kind of things and come equipped with the real knowledge of that. I know that's not true. I know that's a myth. This is, this is what's actually true in this kind of scenario. So be on the lookout for part two where Raymond Pryor and I will dispel some more common golf psychology myths if you like this episode, share it with someone you know who says these kind of things all the time. Like you're you're just ready for them to to not be ignorant, right? Like to not be buying into these same common myths and surrounding yourself with with people who are knowledgeable of the actual truth. So share it with those people. And if you love the Mental Golf Show, go leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks again for being a listener to The Mental Golf Show. I really do appreciate it. I'm Josh Nichols, and I will catch you guys in the next episode. Mm-hmm.